Hey guys, it's Nihal here. Just wanted to let you all know that we recorded this interview a few weeks ago. It was pre-recorded, so we did not get to the topic of Landon Donovan coming out of retirement. That being said, we get a rare look into the mind of Landon Donovan and what he thinks about many relevant topics surrounding U.S. soccer. So without further ado, enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Soccer Brothers Podcast. This is episode number 60. I'm your host, Sal Katan. As always, I'm joined by my brother, Nihal. How you doing, Nihal? I'm fantastic, man, because we interviewed U.S. men's national team and Major League Soccer legend Landon Donovan. We're excited, privileged, and frankly honored to have him on the show. And of course, the interview was fantastic. Yeah, it was. He had a lot to say about the current state of the U.S. men's national team and MLS. In doing so, he shared a lot of personal stories that I'm sure you haven't heard before. We also, of course, discussed Jurgen Klinsmann and his mental health issues in the past, amongst other topics. Also, stay tuned until after the interview to listen to us discuss our experience with Landon on the podcast, as well as our experience with him as fans. I just wanted to address one thing about the interview. Uh, During it, I asked him a question about whether he regrets not playing in Europe for longer, and if it's detrimental to have a lot of the U.S. men's national team players playing in MLS right now. And um, I just wanted to clarify that I wasn't talking about his career specifically when talking about um, playing in MLS and it being detrimental. Uh, obviously, he you know had a great career for the U.S. men's national team, and I don't think that it affected him at all because of his goals and assists and everything else. Right. Yeah. It was just more of a, a general question. Uh, and sometimes our follow-up questions and our actual questions uh, were, were sort of so close together when we wrote them down that... Uh, that just happens. So uh, Sahil just wanted to clear that up. A quick reminder, we are on iTunes and Google Play. So if you are listening to us on SoundCloud, definitely go check us out there and you can get access to all our episodes, including our two most recent episodes detailing the U.S. men's national team's performances against St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Trinidad and Tobago, respectively. Also, we want to talk about the amazing soccer-themed clothing brand named Ambitious Strike. They're based out of Arizona, and they've got great merchandise. If you want to check it out, then go to ambitiousstrike.com. If you want a 15% off discount on your entire purchase, enter the code BROTHERS at checkout. Yep, enter the code BROTHERS at checkout. That's ambitiousstrike.com, A-M-B-I-T-I-O-U-S-S-T-R-Y-K.com. As always, the link is in the description. Without further ado, why don't we get into the interview? Enjoy. All right, we'd like to welcome our guest, Landon Donovan, onto the podcast. How are you doing, Landon? Hello, gentlemen. How are you? We're, we're doing we're well. Doing wonderful, yeah. All right, well, why don't we get right into the questions then? Of course, at the moment, the 2016 Rio Olympics are occurring. You have said that the men missing the Olympics is a lost opportunity for the younger generation of players. What did you learn during the 2000 Olympics that benefited your career? Well, there's multiple sides of it. As a soccer player, it was a valuable experience because anytime you get a chance to play in a tournament like that, I think it's beneficial for you. Anytime you play in a knockout tournament uh, or a round robin and then a knockout, you you learn from it and you know what it takes to navigate a tournament like that in the future. So that's valuable. But for me, the bigger thing, which I've talked about, is that it's a chance that we can't get back to gain new fans and whether we like it or not we're constantly in this role as players and people who support this game where we're trying to attract new fans and like I've said you know I'm a huge sports fan and I watch sports during the Olympics that I would never watch and there's people similar to me who would be watching soccer who might not have watched so 
that way and in the big scheme of things it's not the end of the world but I think it's something we do need to look at seriously okay um, let's go back to the Copa America which of course occurred earlier this summer how do you think the U.S. men's national team performed in the Copa America and what players impressed you particularly I think as an overall statement they were uh, pretty good I wouldn't say you know excellent there was moments that were very good at. I think they had moments in games that they looked like a team that was capable of, of playing with anybody in that tournament obviously the the lasting memory in the end is the loss to Argentina and then losing to Colombia in the third place game and that's you know that's difficult to swallow but I saw more than what I saw on the field I saw a group of players that seemed united and seemed like they were in it together and I hadn't seen that in a little while from that team and so that was very encouraging because when you get into qualifying or the later rounds of qualifying in the hexagonal next year you need that because when you go to Costa Rica or Panama or Mexico or Honduras there's only 28 or 30 people in that entire country that want you to win and so if you're not together in that way then you've got no chance and so I think that was an encouraging sign Obviously, we wanted the team to do better and, and show better against Argentina, but that's the way it goes sometimes when you play a team like that. And I think overall, it was still a very good tournament for the team. So in, in a tournament like this with teams like Argentina, Colombia, uh, Brazil, who of course didn't make it out of the group stages, is fini- should finishing fourth be considered a success? Or is it more about the way we play? Well, sports, in my opinion, are about expectations. So if... You know, Venezuela comes into the tournament and nobody expects them to get out of their group. Nobody expects them to do well. All of a sudden, they advance from the group, and it's a huge success. Uh, If Haiti had done something similar, it would have been the same. Now, Brazil is expected to win the tournament, and they don't advance out of the group. Now, it's a huge disappointment. So it's all based on the expectation level. I think the expectation level for the U.S. starting the tournament was not to get to the semis. So it was to, you know, maybe advance out of the group and then see what happens. So from that standpoint, yes, it was incredibly successful. Now, when you look at it game by game, the Argentina game is what's disappointing. And not that they lost. A lot of teams lose to Argentina. It's how they lost. And, And that was the part that I think people were a little concerned with. But if you, uh... I mean, you said we rised above the expectations, and I would agree with that, but does that alleviate the prior pressure that Klinsman had before the tournament, and do you think the U.S. have found a solid identity going forward? Um, I do. I think, you know, we have short memories in sports, so after the loss to Mexico in the CONCACAF Champions Cup last year and the, the disappointing Gold Cup, you know, everybody's thinking, well, this team's not good enough, and and everyone's talking about Jurgen and his job security. But then, when you have a good tournament like this, uh, things change, and that's the way sports are. And so, and, and you have to give the team credit, and you have to give Jurgen credit for that. Their backs were against the wall, and they did well. So, I think that at this time, I think the team. 
team has a pretty good sense of what the expectations are of what Jurgen wants. Uh, they know what they do well and what they don't do well. And when they do the things they do well, they're a very good team. And so I think they understand that clearly and they stick to that and I think they'll do well and they'll qualify. Okay, speaking of Jurgen Klinsmann, uh, two years ago he said that he wanted to take the U.S. men's national team to the semifinal of the 2018 World Cup. Do you think we're any closer to that goal than we were five years ago? Um, it, it's, hard, it's hard to know. You know, on one hand, I look at the team play certain games. I look at them play Ecuador. I look at some of the friendly games they've played against Holland, Germany, etc. And you say, yeah, they can compete with anybody. That's that's absolutely the truth. The problem, though, is is the consistency isn't there. And so, in order to say we can compete with anybody, you have to show up in big games and compete. And so, when you get an Argentina loss, when you finish fourth in your own Gold Cup that you're expected to at least get to the final two or the final in, that's where you start to see concern because in a World Cup, you need get to a semifinal, you need, let me think out loud here, you need five solid performances in a row. And if you have a bad performance, um, like we have seen from time to time, your tournament's over. Whether that's in the first game or in the, the round of 16 or the quarterfinals, your tournament's over. So I think the consistency is what makes the great teams so great and makes them get to semifinals or finals consistently. Germany doesn't always play great in every tournament, every game. Italy, a lot of times you watch Italy play and you go, how the heck are they in the final of the tournament? And they made it. Somehow they made it. Portugal barely won a game to get to, to win the Euros. So very good teams find a way to do that and they're consistent in that way and they don't have big up, big up and downs and that's what, that's what the U.S. need to get to if if they are going to get to a semifinal. Uh, yeah, we saw Clint Dempsey have a really good Copa America, three assists and three goals. Do you think that Clint Dempsey will still be a major part of the national team going forward and in the 2018 World Cup? I think so. I just don't see, I mean, you guys watch, do you guys see anybody else who can fill that role? Maybe not yet. Maybe down the line, someone like Bobby Wood. Or, We've just seen Aaron Johansson you know, come back from injury. If he can stay healthy. I, um, none of them are at the level yeah. at Clint Dempsey, though. I mean, Yeah, I think what Clint does is Clint is he's, he's the one guy, when I watch the team still, he's the one guy that I say, if we need a special play or we need something to happen, he's the only guy it's coming from. Now, once in a while, you know, Michael, when he's in an attacking role, um, can pull off a special play. When Josie's sitting healthy, he can pull off a special play. Uh, Bobby Wood is more of just a pure finisher in the box, and and he does a very good job of that. But Clint's the guy who can get the ball, beat a guy, and score a goal, or jump over someone in the box and score a goal out of nothing. So because of that, I'd say he has to be a part of the team because you can't that you can't replace that. When you have a player like that, you need them on the field. Absolutely. Uh, so there's a lot of youngsters, a lot of exciting youngsters that American fans uh, are excited about. Uh, Darlington Nagby, who's, I guess, I guess not that young, um, and Christian Pulisic are the two that everyone wanted to see in the Copa America. Uh, how would you evaluate 
their performances and do you think i mean these these are two separate questions do you think we put a little bit too much pressure on young players like this or is that a good thing well everywhere else in the world players this age have that kind of pressure right so you know that's just something that you deal with it's it's you know pressure is funny because pressure is all perceived right there's nothing tangible about pressure so if if you can say this guy has all the pressure in the world on him, but if he doesn't feel it, then he doesn't have any pressure on him. So that's something that every high-level athlete has to deal with. Um, as far as their performances go, we just didn't get to see enough of them. Yeah. And a lot of people said to me, well, why didn't Christian and Darlington play more? I don't understand this. You have to give them a chance. Jurgen's job in the Copa America in qualifying in World Cups is to win. Absolutely. It's not an opportunity where you say, oh, I'll give Pulisic 20 minutes here. I'll give Nagby uh, one half there. If he doesn't think they're going to help him win, then he's not going to play him. And he shouldn't be, he shouldn't be um, looked down on for that. Now, if you, if you believe those guys were good enough to play and you're mad at Jurgen for that, that's one thing. But you shouldn't, this shouldn't be a situation where you say, you know, why didn't he give them a chance? This isn't a place where you give them a chance. You give them a chance in friendlies or in the January camp, things like that. But he felt that the other players on the roster were better fit to help him win, and, and you have to respect that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so let's talk about Jurgen just a little bit more because um, some of his former players, like Tony Cruz and Philip Lom, have questioned his uh, tactical ability. Uh, so when you, in your experience with him as a coach, um, can you talk about your preparation for certain opponents? Uh, what kind of, t- if you guys went over stuff tactically, cause they basically what they've said is that a lot of it was fitness based. A lot of the preparation. So that was a, yeah. a jumbled question. Yeah, no, that's, that is something that Jurgen Jurgen is very big on fitness and mainly because he was so fit as a player in his right. career. And I think it really helped him. Um, what I learned with Jurgen, he was the first coach I played for that really didn't handle all of the tactical side himself. He, he outsourced it, for lack of a better word. He would use an assistant coach who would handle a lot of that stuff. And so it was, it was an interesting dynamic, I think, for a lot of us, because in, in England, a lot of times they do this, where the manager is just the manager picks the team, but they have the first team coach that actually runs training and does the tactical stuff and does all those things. So... I think, you know, if Jurgen, if you asked Jurgen objectively, do you think you're some master tactician, he would probably say, no, but there's a lot of other things I'm good at. And that was my, that was my read on Jurgen is that there was a lot of things he was good at. And then it was all about, in my opinion, getting the right people in to do the tactical part. And I think, I think they've started to figure that out. You know, Jason Christ was in for a while in camp and I heard really good things about him. Tab Ramos has been there and done an excellent job. Uh, Andy Herzog is, I think, growing and getting better and better and the guys really respect him. So I think if you're going to be that kind of coach, it's vital that you have a number two and a number three that really handle that tactical side so you can do the rest. And in my very, very small sample size and limited experience coaching the homegrown game, you realize, and this is on a totally different level than the national team, I realize <laughs> that, 
but it, it, it accentuates my point. There's so many things going on that you deal with as a coach, and even in just the homegrown game, just talking to their club coaches and realizing how many minutes they're going to play and who's going to train today and who's not. I mean, you've got a thousand things to think about. On top of that, if you're trying to also figure out tactics for each game and each week and how to run a training session and all that, it's a ton of work. So I don't see anything wrong with that approach, but if you are going to have the approach, you've got to have really great people that, that know what they're doing around you. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so as you just talked about, you coached the Chipotle homegrown game, and you've also said, you've been on the record saying that you want to get into coaching. Uh, so we were wondering, what is your ultimate goal in terms of coaching, if you have one? I don't have one. That's the problem. <laughs> um, I keep getting asked the question, what do I want to do now? Right. And I don't know. When, when you play a sport, and I'm okay saying that, I think a lot of people have a problem saying they don't know things, but I, I really don't know. And when you play a sport for this long, it's all you focused on. I mean, it's all I ever thought about, cared about, worked for, focused on and prepared for so when you're done with that and I think this is why a lot of athletes struggle after their careers to come to grips with it is you have this big blank canvas which is exciting but you also have no skills in other places so I don't have any coaching skills I don't have any having broadcasting skills I don't have any office skills to work in an office I don't have any labor skills to go work on, on a field somewhere or do construction. I mean, we don't have any of these skills. So we have some intangible skills with the hard work and being a good teammate and taking criticism and that kind of stuff. But you have to sort of figure out, one, what you're passionate about, which is what I'm doing, and then, two, what you're going to be good at. I mean, I might love doing the coaching, and I might be horrible at it. And, I, and I'm, I'm okay with that if that's the case, then... I don't want to do it. I can maybe try to get better, and and I'm sure I would be awful at first, but I'll try to get better if it's something I really love. But the, the short answer to all of that is, is I'm not quite sure. I don't have an ultimate goal. I think if I enjoy it, then I want to do it, and, and if I don't, then I won't. Okay, so getting back to your playing career... Um, do you regret not playing in Europe for longer? Do you think it's detrimental to the U.S. national team to have the majority of the players playing in MLS? Um, first of all, do I regret it? Um, I don't regret. I don't regret not playing there longer. What I regret is that I didn't stay longer in the beginning at mm -hmm. Leverkusen. And I wish I had had somebody, maybe a mentor or somebody that would have helped me and let me or allowed me to realize that it wasn't going to be easy um, I because I had no knowledge I just assumed it would be easy so when things went wrong it was the first time in my life at that point that I hadn't been the star player that I wasn't playing that everyone wasn't telling me how great I was and I didn't know how to react to it and so I regret that because I wish I had at least stuck it out and, and tried to do a better job. Um, now the, the bigger question is, it, do you think it's detrimental to our national team? Um, I played my entire career in Major League Soccer, and you know I think I had a, a you know pretty good national team career. So I don't think they're I don't think they're part and parcel. I don't think they're um, one is dependent upon the other. Uh, there's there's no question. 
question that playing in certain leagues in Europe, there's a higher competition level than there are in Major League Soccer. But if you're a good pro and a good player and you're demanding of yourself, you can still compete at that level. And I never went into a qualifier or a big friendly or a World Cup thinking, wow, these guys are so much better than me. I felt like I was as good as anybody on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, save for you know a couple special players but I felt like I was as well prepared or as good as anybody on the field and so if, if that's your mentality then I think that's fine and that's my personal opinion you know some people probably aren't able to keep themselves going if they're not at quite as high of a competition level and maybe for other people it's different but for me I was always fine with it so I on a day-to-day level, in terms of training, what are some of the differences you experience? Of course, you played at Bayer Leverkusen, Bayern Munich for a short period of time, and you were on loan at Everton twice. Um, if any, what were the differences you experienced um, between all those clubs and, and LA Galaxy? Well, there's lots of differences. There's on-field differences and off-field differences. I think because of the history in Europe, there's a sense of tradition and respect that is inherent when you walk through the the doors every day to go to training. Um, I think initially in MLS, it's impossible to have that, right? Because there's no tradition and there's no history. Now what I see with the Galaxy, even in the last two years, when you walk into the stadium, you feel like, or you walk in the halls of the locker room. Um, you feel like you're in a place that has some real history. And there's, you know, there's plaques on the wall and there's championship trophies there and, and you get that same sense. So that's a little sort of taste of that. Certainly when the fans are in the stadium, um, you understand that they've seen it for 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years when you're in Europe and we're obviously, again, it's impossible to have all of that in Major League Soccer because we're so young. And then the on-field stuff, it, it varies from league to league and from team to team. I mean, Leverkusen versus Bayern Munich even were very different. Right. Uh, and Everton was completely different. So I think, as a general statement, the level of competition for me in training was much harder in Europe. Um, part of that was because I knew that unless I was having a really bad stretch of games that I was going to play for the Galaxy. So my weeks were more geared towards getting myself prepared for the weekend as opposed to competing for my spot on Saturday. But when I played at Everton or at Leverkusen or Bayern Munich, it was very much every day of training was to compete for a spot on the weekend. So they were just different in that way. One wasn't better than the other, but, but that's how they differed for me personally. Uh, U.S. soccer is highly criticized in, uh, by many European fans. So particularly in your lone spells at Everton, did you feel like you had a point to prove about U.S. soccer since you did so well over there? And do you think it changed some people's minds? I'd like to say no, I didn't feel like I had a point to prove, but I always did. And I think, I think a lot of us feel that way. We, I think the problem is, is people hold on to... They want to hold on to this, their superiority. And mm-hmm. so instead of looking at the facts, I think a lot of people just like to say, well, MLS isn't good or MLS 
Liga. We're not stupid, of course we know that, right? We're not we're not pretending like <laughs> yeah. like they are. Right. However, to not give leagues or teams or players credit simply because you wanna feel like you're superior is ignorant and and it just doesn't help anybody. So I always felt every time I played a game at Everton, when I was at Bayern Munich, uh, even when we played all-star games here, I always felt like I wanted the other team to come away with a little more respect, a little more knowledge about our league and our teams, and I wanted them to have an understanding that this is actually a real sport here and that we have real players. And, you know, I remember there was one press conference, I think, I don't remember the player, it was a, a player for England, we were playing a friendly against England, and we were both at the press conference, uh, myself, I think it was Bob Bradley, and and whoever their coach was, and their player, and someone asked them, what do you know about, asked the player, what do you know about the players from, from the U.S. team, tell us some of the, you know, tell us about soccer in the U.S., or maybe some of the players, whatever, and his response was, well, we know the women's team has been great for years, and you know, the men are getting better. And I was—I thought to myself, I have this respectful of that. And, but not only that, the reason that was what his comment was was because he didn't know any of us. He didn't know any players. He didn't know the teams. He didn't know a lot about soccer in America. So it's incumbent upon us then to make sure he knows, right? And so you can, you know, you can do that in individual games, but bigger pictures needs to get to a point where there's more respect in that way. And that was in 2007, so it was still relatively recently. Um, you know, I think it's getting better and better, but we still have a ways to go. And Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, Sahil and I are, are big MLS fans, but there seems to be a huge faction of U.S. fans, U.S. soccer fans, who for some reason refuse to watch MLS. How do we as MLS fans and MLS as an organization reach those people? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's a big question, obviously, one we're trying to figure out. For me, right. you, the, the way you do that is you put something, a product, on the field or in front of the TV that is worth watching. And listen, at the end of the day, I believe the market should speak, the, the consumer and the customer should speak. If they want to watch because it's a good product, they'll watch. I know a lot of people who wake up at 4.30 or 5.30 or 6.30 on Saturday and Sunday morning because they want to watch the Premier League, but they don't know a lot about soccer. It's just an entertaining thing to put on in the morning. So that's the point we have to get to. It's, if we're not doing that, that's our fault. That's Major League Soccer's fault. And so my, you know, one of my constant points of emphasis when I talk to the league and league officials is it's great to have big-name players, and they've done a great job promoting the league and helping grow the league in certain ways. But in the end, we have to, we can't have three or four good players on a team because that doesn't make the product great. If there's three or four good players and there's two or three players that pass the ball out of bounds every time, it, the product's going to suffer. Right. So we need to get to the point where there's high-quality players all over the field. And in my opinion, the way you do that is twofold. It's bringing in players that are of a high quality, maybe not international superstars, but of 
high quality, even if people haven't heard of them because it helps the league. And you develop young American players that people want to watch and that are good enough to compete at this level that will eventually be playing for the national team. And I think if you get those two parts right, then you can add big international superstars, which every great league does, at least from time to time. And then you get a product that's really entertaining that people want to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And in that same vein, do you think this has gotten better over the last couple of years, but do you think MLS has done a good enough job uh, incentivizing signing homegrown players? We've seen the likes of Jordan Morris and Kellen Acosta and a lot of other really good young players, Tommy Thompson. Do you think they've done a good enough job um, of promoting that? I think they're doing a good enough job signing players, promoting it, yes. What I think they're still lacking in is the development after they sign them. It's not, it's not in my opinion, it's not good enough to sign an 18-year-old who is training with your first team but that realistically has no chance of playing right now and then not work on developing them. And so what we've seen a lot of, and I've seen it with the Galaxy uh, when I was playing, is you have these kids who are talented. They either don't get a chance to play or they don't get enough specialized attention to get better. And this is a little bit of a hot topic for me because I was with the homegrown team weeks ago and it's it's not okay with with me that these kids are so talented but they're not playing now if they're not good enough to play they're not good enough to play i'm not claiming that every 18 year old should just get unlimited minutes and should be playing at the end of the day the coach has to make that decision but from my perspective these kids are good enough to play i watch a lot of mls games and there's a handful of kids on that team that should be playing if not every minute significant minutes for their mls team and I think the problem is is that they're not they're stopping their development after they get signed. And so by way of comparison, when I was at Leverkusen I was you know if there were I don't know, there's twenty some odd people on the roster, I was you know, I was probably number fifty to a hundred in their list of who they thought might play each weekend, right? But still Twice a week, every week, I was out on the field with one coach. They would bring a goalkeeper out, and we would just work on my finishing. And that was just me. Imagine the kid who was number 25 on their list, right? Yeah. That kid was getting even more specialized attention. And I think that's the only way you can make these kids better. And, again, it doesn't mean that every kid's going to make it and be a star and playing for the national team, but if you're not helping them develop from 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, and it's just a waste because you're throwing all this money and attention and marketing dollars into it, and you don't get anything out of it. Absolutely, and I mean, for, for from a fan's perspective, it's really it's really frustrating to see players like I mean, Tommy Thompson is the biggest one to me, or like Jose Villarreal. These players seem yeah. like they're good enough to play, um, but you know, they don't. As you said, they don't get the attention they need. Um, yep. So, so I agree. how how do we? How? What are solutions to that? Do we just do we bring in more coaches? Do we have a dedicated academy system? And also, you know, the USL team I'm sure is helping a lot with the Galaxy. Um, you know, a player like Jack McBean is getting playing time, and he's I think he's going on loan to Coventry City. Um, right. So yeah, so Coventry City. So, um, what what is the role of the USL team and, and academies as a whole? Do you think? Well, what's I'm curious. What as a fan, what do you think the answer is? Well, you know, it's it's difficult because I think 
the academy system has gotten a, a lot better. I mean, these I guess there are two different questions because the academy is more about identifying players and developing them before they sign a pro contract. Um, I mean, we just have such a big country, it's almost impossible to, to identify everyone. Um, as far as the USL team goes, I think it's good. But I still think I still think Tommy Thompson, a player like Tommy Thompson, should be playing in MLS as opposed to Sacramento Republic. Sure. But if you're, so, but if you're Dominic Kinnear and you're watching him every week, right? And you think he's still not, you know, he he dresses almost every week for the first team, but right. he, but which obviously this is what Dominic thinks. He thinks you know he's not good enough to start for me. Um, what's the solution? Right? I mean, right. you'd think that as a fan, but if you have to trust that the coach watches him every week and thinks that, then what's, how, do you, how does Tommy get better and how does he improve? Right. Well, and I think the, the, the number one solution is to go on loan to a team like Sacramento Republic um, to develop his skills. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that question is. Okay, but so let's just play devil's advocate. So he goes on loan to Sacramento Republic. Well, yeah. guess what? The coach at Sacramento Republic, <laughs> uh, Paul Buckle, I believe, is one, trying to keep his job and trying to win right. games. Tommy Thompson's been training with the Earthquakes till Friday, and he drives up to Sacramento, and all of a sudden are you going to drop him in the lineup when your team has no chemistry with him, hasn't played with him, whatever? No, so, I mean, he sh- theoretically, he, he should go on loan and train with Sacramento Republic and be part of that team. Okay. And is that, but is that the best for his development, to be training there or to be training against or training and watching Chris Wondolowski every day in front of the goal? I think, right, so. well, I think, that, well, I guess, I mean, you obviously know more than I do, but I think getting first-team minutes is, is the most important thing. Is, I mean, do you disagree? I, it depends on the age, right? Okay, the that's only fair. way you find out if a player is going to make it or not is by putting them into games. Now, the problem that I've been seeing is I saw a number of kids get put into a game. They hadn't played a game in six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks because they were only training and not playing games. All of a sudden, they're starting a game for the Galaxy in Houston in the middle of summer. After 45 minutes, they're exhausted. They've been you know, run ragged by Brad Davis and Boniac Garcia, and then they get pulled out of the game, and they never play again the rest right. of the year. So, you know, it, it depends on where you're at. And my, my biggest thing is, is what kind of attention is being paid to these players. So during the week... Just to, so you guys have some insight during the week in training, if it's kind of like it's kind of like the NFL would do it, right? If Peyton Manning's your quarterback, he's getting 80, 90, 95 percent of the reps because he needs it to get ready for the weekend. Now, after training with the Galaxy, if Robbie Keane says, "Hey, Dave Serafin, our assistant coach, I need 15 minutes worth of finishing." And Jack McBean says, hey, I need 15 minutes worth of finishing. <laughs> Guess who's getting the finishing practice? Right. Right? So maybe the answer is you need more staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you need individual staff for, for young players that just pulls them aside and works on certain things. There's certain players that just need to work on certain things. Robbie Keane doesn't need to work on certain things. He knows what he's good at, what he's not good at. He's not going to teach at 34 years old. Right. I was the same, you know. Todd Donovan, older guys, they're all the same. But young guys actually need, you know, Tommy Thompson, I don't know him well enough. I think he's a very good player. Maybe he needs to work on his crossing. I'm just picking something out of that. Right. If he doesn't have the ability to do that, and there's no one there teaching him or helping him, 
then how's it going to get better? Right. And that's, you know, that's my take on all of it. Yeah, that's fair. So do you think the newest MLS CBA was progressive enough, and do we need full-blown free agency to become a top league? Um, well, I, I'm smart enough to know that unless you are in the room uh, negotiating and, and privy to all the information, then you have no idea what went on. And so I've been in the room in the past. And when people would criticize afterwards, it would drive me crazy because they had no idea what they were talking about and they right. weren't aware of it. Right. So it would be a little uh, ignorant of me to pretend I knew. Um, to answer, so I, I don't know to answer, I don't know how to answer your question. Is it progressive enough? My personal opinion, having seen the league grow over 15 years, is that the fact that the players were able to get some sort of free agency, although very limited, was a massive, massive breakthrough because the owners said when they started the league, there's absolutely no way we will ever have any form of free agency. Right. So when when you think of it that way, you would say that's great for the players. Conversely, the owners, I think, from a financial standpoint, probably are happy about it because they they probably didn't end up giving as much as, or they didn't give more than they wanted to, and I think they were happy with it. So in that way, you could you could see that both sides are probably a little disappointed, but also happy with the way things went. Um, do we need free agency? You know, the argument against free agency is that you end up paying the same player more money. Right, so if the goal is to make the league better, you don't make the league better by paying, just pick a Jack McBean, instead of paying him $10, now you pay him $20, does that make the league better? And that's the argument the league has always had against right. free agency, which I understand. Um, from a player's standpoint, the part that frustrates me as, as a player is it used to be the case and it still is to some extent where a club would say, we'll just keep using Jack McBean because uh, we're just going to wear out Jack McBean today. If a galaxy said, Jack McBean, we don't want you on our team, um, not because we don't like you, we just don't think you're, you're going to play. There was teams in the league that would say that to their players, and Jack McBean would say, okay, well, let me go. And they would say, no, we're not going to trade you because no one will trade anything for you or trade enough for you. Mm -hmm. And Jack would say, well, why why would you hold me back from doing that? And that's literally that's literally what teams in this league would do. They would say, well, you're not playing for us and we're not letting you go anywhere. That, to me, is not only bad business, it's, it's just fundamentally wrong. Right. So that you don't want. I think maybe there's a happy medium somewhere. I mean, I understand the argument of, you don't want to pay players more money just because, but at the same point, players deserve to make more money, right? If, if league officials do a good job, they get raises and they get more money, and players should be the same. And so I can see all sides of it. I don't think we necessarily need unrestricted free agency to, to be a top league, but from a player standpoint, I think it's important to be able to earn a better salary and also not be kept somewhere you don't want to be. Absolutely. 
Um, all right, so let's go back to what you're doing right now. Uh, you're part of an ownership group at Swansea City. Um, so why don't you talk about a little bit about what your role is at the club? Um, I just read an article, I think yesterday, say, where Jason Levian, who is also is one of the owners at Swansea, said he had been consulting you uh, about players, um, which is, I mean, that's pretty awesome. Um, so what is your role with Swansea? And what do you envision it being? Going uh, it's, well, it's not what I envision. It's what it is. Um, I, when, when I met with them, I, I, I made a few things really clear. Um, one, that I didn't want to come into this thinking I was some expert on how to make Swansea City Football Club better. They have people there, one in particular, Hugh Jenkins, the chairman, who has done an unbelievable job of getting that team to where it is. And so it would be, not only would it be egotistical, it would be stupid of me to pretend like I would possibly know more than he would in this realm. So... I made it clear that that was not the type of role I wanted. Um, what I want to do is help, and that could mean a variety of things. One is, you know, sometimes they might say we're thinking of this player or this player. You know, they're the same price, and we're thinking about buying one of them. Do you know anything about them? Well, guess what? Maybe one of the players I played with, and maybe he's an unbelievable leader and great guy in the locker room and really helps the team. And if that's the case, I can tell them that and say, listen, I would lean this way because this guy has this, 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 and this. So that could be a way that I can help. Um, I think the other piece of it for me was helping them understand the difference between owning a team, a sports team in the U.S. versus owning a soccer team around the world. And they are part owners of the Memphis Grizzlies, mm-hmm. I believe, and Jason with DC United. Um, with other sports in this country, it's the owners that own the team. But in, in Europe and in other parts of the soccer world, the fans own the team. And that's emotionally. In this case, it's partially financially with the Swansea Trust that owns it, about 20% of the team. And if you come in saying, well, we're the, we are the owners, we're making all these changes, um, and that's the way it's going to be done, you're going to find yourself in a lot of hot water. And, and you really have to just be a guardian for the team and help make it better. And that's, that's what I believe, and I wanted to make sure that they agreed before I became part, part of this group because... You don't want to go in and ruin a great thing. You want to go in and help a great thing. And and, and I think, unfortunately, too many American owners have gone in with Mm -hmm. the wrong mentality, and they've they've, they've suffered for it. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, final couple of questions. Um, This one definitely hits home for me. Uh, And you're someone who's been outspoken about mental illness and depression. Um, What do you think the role of an athlete is in creating a constructive discourse in terms of mental illness? I don't personally think an athlete has any mandatory obligation in that. Mm. I think if you choose to share it, I think it's really powerful. Right. And I think it can really help. Whether we like it or not, people look up to us and people listen to what we say. And so, you know, I, I this week is... 
an interesting week to talk about people listening to what you say because we hear one of our presidential candidates say some interesting things this week. Right. Um, and it's, it makes you really think about how important your words are. And I, I recently had a kid, and it makes me understand clearly that you have to be careful what you say and you have to be smart about what you say. Now, that being said, when you're in a powerful position, that can be a negative thing, but you can also use that in a very positive way. So I've had, you know, as I've spoken openly about my my instances with depression and how it's affected my life, I've received lots and lots and lots of emails and letters and tweets and notes from people saying, thank you so much for talking about that. Um, it's something I've dealt with forever and I hadn't felt you know, comfortable talking about it openly, but now I can. Mm -hmm. And so that to me feels really good because it wasn't the intention of being open about it. I just wanted to sort of, uh, I wanted to help end the stigma a little bit and just yeah. talk about it, but that's a ancillary benefit that's been really nice for me to see. So how do we as a society, in terms of, of depression, I, I mean, obviously, you don't have that you're not you don't have the answer to everything but um how do we as a society as a society move forward in terms of destigmatizing mental illness and you know treating things like depression as a real debilitating illness um well that's a that's a really right. tough question right. to answer because the the reality is is that if you've never had a bout of depression or never dealt with it there's no way you can understand what it is. You can you can sympathize and try to be compassionate, but you can't really understand until you deal with it. And even mm -hmm. that, even saying that, there's levels of depression and types of depression. So mm -hmm. maybe I can understand a certain level, but maybe I can't understand a different type of depression or a different level of depression. So I think the important thing, and this cuts much deeper than just talking about depression, it's, it's in talking about all things, all illnesses, all mental illnesses, all physical uh, disabilities, is to stop judging, mm -hmm. first of all, be compassionate, because we never know what people are going through, and just try to be a kind person. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but what's wrong with just being nice to people? Why are we why are we so harsh on people? And so that's that that is I think the overwhelming important thing to remember here. And and I've said this too, and one thing that, that bothers me is in sports, especially if someone tears their ACL, mm -hmm. everybody is is fine allowing them their six to eight months or ten months or twelve months to recover. If someone has depression, it's like, well, just get out of it. You're in a funk. Just get out of it. Right? And yeah. so that's the part that's frustrating. And again, it goes back to my first comment is that people just don't understand it. And that's fine. And I, 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 I can appreciate why they make some of the comments they make. But it's not fair to the person who's dealing with it. And so I think the more we talk about it, maybe the more we have people start to understand it a little bit better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, well, that's all we have for you. Thank you, Landon, for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Landon Donovan. Landon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're so grateful for you taking time out of your day to join us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And good luck to you in all your future endeavors. Also, guys, one more thing. Definitely go check out our website, SoccerBrothersPodcast.com. You can read about Landon and all of our other guests. You can also find archives of our previous episodes, as well as a lot of other cool stuff. The website just went live. We're really excited about it. A huge shout-out to Sachin Hijabu for helping us out. And the link to the website, as always, will be in the description. Yeah, but going back to this interview... I mean, it's just crazy that Landon Donovan, Landon Donovan, you know, a guy that we've been talking to each other about for so long, sat down and took 40 minutes out of his day to, you know, talk to us about soccer. Yeah, and once again, he didn't have to do it. Thank you so much, Landon. Uh, we're, like, like I just said, we're so grateful. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it sort of started in August of 2015. Uh, I contacted Landon, and I sort of forgot about it for a long time. And then three months later, I get a response from him. And, you know, he's obviously so gracious. He's like, we, I want to help you out. He asked me of how the podcast is going. Um, and we're sort of in this correspondence for a little while. And then a little bit later, uh, we're in L.A. and I shoot him an email and I ask him, you know, can we interview you? Can we uh, meet up? And he said, why don't you guys send me some questions? Send me some uh, an episode of your podcast and I'll listen to it. And we did that. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't pan out in L.A. because, you know, we were busy. He was also very busy. Um, and then, you know, it's sort of he and I were talking for, for a long time. And, I mean, even just talking about me talking to Landon Donovan for a long time is sort of surreal. Um, and it finally came to this. We finally found a time that worked for all of us. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And, I mean, originally, you know, the interview was going to be before the Copa America, but I think it turned out pretty fine. You know, we got yeah. to talk about what happened. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think we were able to sort of we, – we had to switch our questions a little bit because we had those questions pre uh, prepared a long time ago. And I think at that time, we, we, you and I, were more critical of U.S. soccer before our finish at the Copa America. Um, so I think that sort of shifted the narrative and the questions we asked him, which is probably good because it was just kind of like raw frustration. Right. And Klinsman. We weren't really, you know, there's still good questions, but you know, now it was just a little bit more. I think balanced. this makes it more timeless. This, the fact that it happened after the Copa America. Uh, but you know, it's, it's crazy because Landon Donovan's a player you and I sort of grew up watching. Uh, he, is my favorite player of all time. He and Tim Howard, I'm an Everton fan, so those two are definitely up there. He's the reason why I got into soccer. Uh, he's the reason why I support Everton, really, because uh, when I started watching soccer, he was on his first loan spell over there. Uh, so it, you know, it's just, it, it's so surreal that we got the opportunity to talk to him. Um, so with that, I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite Landon Donovan moment? And disclaimer, we were on a plane. We were on a plane to India during the USA Algeria match uh, in 2010. So we we actually missed that goal. <laughs> yeah, um, let's not talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's just so many. Um, I I remember. So as Nihal said, we're actually kind of new soccer fans. I mean, he started watching soccer in 2010, which was the season after the World Cup. 
Um, so the, one of the first goals that I saw pretty much everyone watching soccer was Landon Donovan's goal versus Slovenia, where he had that near post finish on the right hand side in and, the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that was a tying goal. Uh, no, maybe it was no, it's two one because Michael. Goal, yeah. yeah, Michael Bradley right, scored right. later. And I also liked it, um, who didn't like it, when he put on the sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, I knew he was there. <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, my two favorite moments, we were at the 2013 Gold Cup Final. Uh, and just this, that was, I think, our first time seeing him play in person. Because uh, we had been to U.S. matches before, but he wasn't in the team then. So I think seeing him walk around the stadium with the trophy right in front of us was pretty cool. The other one was, uh, unfortunately, you weren't there, it was USA versus Mexico in 2013 as well, uh, when we qualified for the World Cup, when he scored that second goal uh, to go up 2 nothing to make it dos acero, right. and the whole the whole stadium went crazy. That was such a cool moment. Uh, and obviously being there is one I will never forget. But you'll be there this time uh, when the USA plays Mexico and Columbus. Yeah, so. hopefully you get a similar result. Yeah, you won't, um, you won't miss that. But he... He has done so much for the sport in this country. Major League Soccer and the U.S. men's team would not be where they are without him. And I think uh, no matter how you feel about uh, the end of his career or anything like that, I think that that is an objective, true statement. The, the U.S. men's national team wouldn't be where they are without him. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, he, he is, you know, the, the, the poster boy of U.S. soccer and... I mean, yeah, like you were saying, you, you can say he retired too early or whatever, but I, he did more in that in that 11 or, I mean, well, no. Oh, 14, 14 years. years yeah. yeah, because he played, I don't know why I just assumed 20, but <laughs> um, then, you know, a lot of players will ever do. So, you know, he, and he, you know, especially considering all those obstacles that he had to face in his personal life, he put a lot on the line right. for this game that he loved. And right. um, every time you, you watched a U.S. game, you, you you always looked at Landon Donovan, right? And that's and and I think we're still feeling the effects of him retiring. We haven't truly replaced him, and you know, obviously Christian Pulisic is there, and all these youngsters are there. Uh, and Landon himself has said Christian Pulisic is ahead of where he was <laughs> at that age. So, but he opened the door for players like that to have a profile abroad, I, I truly feel. And not only him, of course. We don't want, like, you know, players like Clint Dempsey and Brian McBride, even Eric Winalda and Joe Maxmore, these guys who went abroad, they did a lot, too. But Landon Donovan, and, and, and Landon Donovan did it at the international level for so, for so long. And that's why he never lost any respect amongst English supporters. They still know who Landon Donovan is, even right. when he's scoring goals in MLS. Well, Everton fans love him. Because yeah. he, he turned around our season. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, and he was MLS he was player he was, of the month, Yeah, he right? was player of the month, Everton player of the month. So, I mean, he's just a quality player. I truly believe a world-class player. Uh, you know, obviously we wish we saw him in 2014, um, but... I don't think I don't really think we'll ever be able to forget that. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And, you know, now we got to see his, his, uh, his punditry. Yeah, the 2014 World Cup yeah, on ESPN, which was pretty stellar. True, and, and you know I really do respect his punditry because I or punditry, excuse me. There's no N in that word. I don't yes. know why I always do that. <laughs> but uh, well, there is an N. There's not a second N. But, um, but I think he's pretty balanced and pretty natural at it. Actually, uh, as you can see with our interview with him, he, I mean, he's just a really intelligent person too. You know, he he knows what he's saying, which is you know, and, and the other thing, like I said. 
in the interview or what I touched on in the interview, what I really respect about him is how honest he has been uh, his entire career. And whether it be about mental illness, whether it be about how he feels about the U.S. men's national team, one of the big headlines was that, oh, Landon Donovan was rooting against the U.S. national team after he didn't make the World Cup roster. That's not true. That's not true. He said, you know, he, he against Azerbaijan in the friendly, he hoped they would struggle a little bit without him, but ultimately he, he hoped they would win. And he said, of course, in the World I Cup, that, yeah. yeah, of course, in the World Cup, he would he would root for them. So he's always been honest, and I think he's always gotten a little bit of flack for it. And we see with certain stories in the sports world, we as fans want honesty, but when when athletes, current events, I mean, when athletes are too honest or when they're out there, they, they're very visceral reactions, and, and mm-hmm. people people don't like it. People want them to conform to their way of thinking. And I think Landon Donovan has been a champion of being honest and you know, the mental health thing for me is something that's huge because I'm someone who has suffered from depression and having an athlete like that who is honest about it, who makes it more normalized is, is really helpful. And it, it makes me comfortable talking about it and saying that on the podcast right now. And, and I think another thing that's so cool about him is that he, you know, he never tries to create any separation between him and the fans. I feel right. like he's he's always been the same person, and I can imagine Landon Donovan, you know, jumping up and down on the U.S. score just like we do now. Right when he was when he, and I'm sure he still does. So yeah. that and also he he really did not have to come on the show. He didn't have to respond to me. He didn't have to keep on talking to me, and I was persistent, but he responded. And he, the first thing he said was he wanted to help me out. He wanted to help us out. And, you know, he, he I saw on Twitter a couple of months ago that he just DM'd some guy and gave him a signed jersey or something, like, because the guy tweeted at him. That doesn't mean if you're going to, you tweet at him, you're going to get a signed jersey from Landon Donovan. That's yeah. probably not going to happen, but he's, you know, he's willing to engage with the fans. And I think that's just so, that's so cool. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, there was nothing, like, quote unquote, in in it for him right. from from doing this you know we didn't give him anything <laughs> right exactly it, we're a very small podcast like we just started really a year ago and it's something that we love to do to talk about soccer we we're not experts but we just love talking about it and talking to Landon is probably as good as it's going to get for us because we he is our idol he's our soccer idol there, there, there can be, and hopefully, I mean, obviously, we want we want there to be, you know, more talented players. We want to have see Ronaldo's and Messi's on the U.S. Men's National Team, but I don't know if there will be, you know, many players that will exceed, you know, how much, uh, you know, we care about Landon Donovan, how much we, you know, we idolize him because he's right. just truly an icon, and and he took he took U.S. soccer to the next step. Right, and I think level. I think a really good we're both Packers fans, so a really good analogy here is. Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. You know, Brett Favre is probably not a better quarterback than Aaron Rodgers. But, I mean, he, and he's, but he still is an all-time great. But what he did for Green Bay, what he did for that city and for that team, is, you know, he, he, he allowed for Aaron Rodgers to come to a franchise that was already built, that was already strong, and was able to give Aaron Rodgers the tools to succeed. Now, and obviously, Aaron Rodgers is talented by himself, and he probably could have succeeded elsewhere. 
But it's the same thing, you know. The U.S. men's national team would not be established if it weren't for players in the in the early 2000s, the mid 2000s, and especially Landon Donovan. These players, I don't, I really don't think would be coming through the system, or they wouldn't be identified um, like they are now, because he was at the center of our success as a, as a national team since 2002, since that quarterfinal run. And it's one of those things where even if you didn't, you know, grow up watching him, you can still appreciate what he's done on paper because he leads MLS in goals and assists, and he leads the U.S. men's national team in goals and assists and starts and even more stuff that you can check out on our website actually now. Yeah. We're going to put that on the guest page, but um, it's just it's just crazy what he's done even on a statistical level. Yeah, I, I he, we haven't had a player like that before, uh, and like you said... There probably will be more talented players, but they're never. It's never going to be. They're never going to be Landon Donovan. They're never going to have that sentimental value that Landon Donovan has to the fans that grew up with him. So um, it's just it's so surreal. It's so surreal. Thank you once again. Thank you, Landon. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else to add? Yeah, as you mentioned, we have a website now, SoccerBrothersPodcast.com. We also have Twitters and Instagram. Those are under the handles at SoccerBrothersPod. Email us questions or comments at SoccerBrothersPodcast at gmail.com. There's no app before soccer. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you're on SoundCloud, like or follow us. If you're on iTunes, review or rate us. And, you know, in the future, if you clicked on Twitter and listened to this, then you don't need to because uh, it's easier to have them offline or get them automatically on iTunes. So definitely right. do that. We're on Google Play as well. Also, a huge shout out to Cole Guerin for helping us out with the intro and outro. He created them. They sound great. Thank you so much. You can go check out his work on his new album, Chasing Paradise. Uh, he worked alongside our former social media intern, Dinesh Raj, who was actually on a couple of podcasts, as well as the rapper, The Inspire. They're on Spotify and iTunes. We'll leave a link to their uh, Spotify account uh, in the description. Their album is there as well. Yep. Uh, the intro and outro sound great. Thank you so much for that, Cole. And uh, just to reiterate our, upl- or our, yeah, our upload policy... Uh, we upload podcasts every week and after every U.S. men's national team game. So that's going to be the thing. Right. Stay here. Yeah, we'll probably have a couple more episodes for Champions League and special cases like that. Uh, but we are kind of busy sometimes, so uh, we can't always do it. But, you know, I'm at college. Sahil has a lot going on in yeah, his life. Too. I haven't yet dropped out of high school to just work on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this very special episode. We'll hopefully see you next time for episode 61 of the Soccer Brothers Podcast. Bye.